When I was younger, I used to bound up the steps. Not anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. And you know, don't we appreciate Millard's playing the piano before the service on Sunday morning? What a blessing that is. <laughs> Several years ago, Joel Vazanen preached a sermon in which he equated life to a race. And he divided that race into four quarters, and he said that most races are won or lost in the third quarter. Now, Joel, I think it'd be worthwhile to repeat that sermon, because a lot of us here today are in the third quarter, maybe even a little bit beyond. (laughs) I don't want to repeat his sermon today, but as I prayed about this morning, Two verses of Scripture just would not leave my mind. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that does so easily entangle us. And let us run with diligence the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What a marvelous passage. Now, I'm not going to say anything new for the next few minutes, but let's just remind ourselves of what we know about this epistle. This epistle was written probably between 62 and 64 A.D. More than 30 years before, 11 men stood on Mount Olivet to the east of Jerusalem and looked down upon the holy city. And they were standing with Jesus. And they began to ask him questions, which he answered. There was dialogue. And then he said to them, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other both parts of the world. But don't go anywhere until you receive the Holy Spirit. Stay in Jerusalem. And in the midst of that conversation, they were stunned because he suddenly (laughs) began to rise. They were aghast. And he vanished in the clouds. And they stood gazing up in the clouds, and suddenly two men in white garments appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? For this same Jesus shall come again in the same manner. They went back into Jerusalem with that hope he's coming again. For ten days, they and other disciples, about 120 of them, met in prayer. And at the end of that ten days, the Holy Spirit did come. And in obedience to what he said, indeed, the gospel went forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the world. Before long, it became more Gentile than Jewish. But back in Jerusalem, things weren't easy. Initially, there was tremendous persecution. 
some Christians, because of their faith and no longer following the Jewish religion, had their property confiscated. Some were whipped, some were stoned, imprisoned. But they were able to go through it all because he said, I'm coming again. The disciples remembered in that night that he was betrayed after the Lord's Supper. He said to them, it's expedient to you that I go away. If I go away, I'll prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And that was their hope. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. Some died. And they waited and they waited, and they waited. After a while of waiting and waiting and waiting, some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem began to yearn for the old days. We remember when as a part of the Jewish family, these wonderful traditions we were a part of, we, the sacrifices at the temple were barred from that now. And some began to drift back to fall away. Others, well, it's kind of become routine. We don't really feel any need to attend the Sunday gathering. If we have other things to do, we'll do. And so they began to absent themselves from the gathering of the body. And so, and I'm sure it was Paul who wrote Hebrews, wrote it to that group of people. Reminding them of the tremendous things that we have in Christ Jesus that never existed with the Jews. Two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 10, warn that damnation awaits those who fall away. And exhorted them in chapter 10, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. You may find Sunday boring. You may hear some old man get up talking. I've heard him before. But why do you come on Sunday? One reason is to encourage one another. You have no idea what some brother and sister is going through. And the kind word of encouragement may enable them to take those next steps. I think one of the most important things we do on Sunday morning is what we did a few minutes ago. Break up and talk a while. <laughs> You know, sometimes I'll take the communion elements back and I'm in the hall and I can't understand a word anybody's saying, but just that babble is music that I know gladdens the heart of God as we are encouraging one another. That's the background of this epistle. Let's look at it. Sing then, as some versions say, and some say since, <laughs> We are compassed about or surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? <laughs> Certainly it harks back to chapter 11 that has just preceded it and the great heroes of the faith that are listed. And we like that. It talks about victory, victory, victory. And you get down to the close of that chapter and it says you know by faith women receive the dead back to life it talks about conquering kingdoms but then suddenly it says but some were tortured 
some are imprisoned, so on and so on. And then, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? Now, I want to be as honest and as transparent as I can with you about that passage this morning. The first time I did an in-depth study of the book of Hebrews was 1955. And I studied the book under the tutelage of Professor Rupert Clinton Foster. How do you like that name? (laughs) I tell you, he was one stern old bird. He was uh, kind but stern. One day in class he said, Now you men that are preparing to be involved in gospel ministry, one of my roles, if I can, is to make you wash out. Now he was using World War II language for men who were in flight school. Now Herb, I don't know if they used that language when you were in flight school or not, but wash out meant you failed. (laughs) And so he said, one of my roles is to do all I can to make you wash out. Because once you launch forth in gospel ministry, there will be no place for any excuses. Sunday morning it's time to preach. Sunday night it's time to preach. Wednesday it's time to preach. Maybe five times a week it's time to preach. And you can't get up and say, I'm sorry folks, I've been too busy to prepare a sermon. You have to do it. It was that kind of sternness, rigidity that this man put forth. And I thank God he did. Because any time you studied something under him, you knew it when you were through. (laughs) A very disciplined man. It's interesting from that time forth, the epistle to the Hebrews has often loomed large in my thinking. If I were to go back over my 64 years of preaching, I think I would find that the book of Hebrews has been the text for more sermons than any other portion of God's word. And yet this phrase has always challenged me. Seeing then that we're compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does that mean? The picture we see, of course, is of a great amphitheater, beginning with the Greeks and later the Romans picked it up. If you look on television sometime and see a football stadium and all those crowds of people, that's what it looked like, tier upon tier upon tier, watching the games. And the the, uh, area down below was called the stadia. That's where we get the word stadium. The racetrack is the curriculum. That's where we get the word curriculum. And so the people in the stands would watch the race. They would watch the contest, and they would cheer or moan. And that's the picture that's given here. And as I've puzzled over all of these years that verse, what does that mean? Does it literally mean that those that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, does it literally mean that the saints who have gone before are watching us in our race? Or is it some kind of a metaphor? Now, I'll be honest with you that for most of my life, I sought to make it a metaphor for various reasons. I thought if someone dies and goes to be with Jesus and can still watch us 
and they see a loved one falling away, destined for hell, how can they have any peace? Also, to be very honest with you, I thought about myself, my own sins and failures. I just didn't want some folks to see me. I didn't want that to be true. And other reasons as well. Perhaps reaction to Roman Catholicism. When Barbara died, I walked down the hall a short distance and shortly encountered Dr. Allred, the surgeon that did three of the many surgeries that Barbara experienced in her life. And I said to him, Dr. Allred, Barbara just died. And he said, that's one more up there to help us. <laughs> I don't believe that. I don't believe that. There's only two intercessors for us, really. Romans chapter 8 speaks of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. And the Greek word here is alaleo, words that cannot be uttered. It's not tongues. The Holy Spirit's doing something that can't be uttered, interceding for us. And later on, it talks about Jesus who liveth forever to make intercession for us. The, the intercessors are the Holy Spirit and Jesus, not some Christian, some saint that's gone before. There's nothing in the Word of God that says those who have departed in any way can involve themselves in our lives. But can they see our lives? Now for me today, I have come to accept that literally. Yes, they may see a loved one going to hell, but someday in the day of judgment they're going to see it too. What's the difference between now and then? and all those other reasons. Although I can't hear them, I believe that every time the devil attacks me and he's defeated and goes away like a dog with a tail between his legs, that vast assembly cheers. Every time I fail, they moan. I can't hear it, but I believe they do. For me personally, all the years of wrestling with that, I now take it literally. Perhaps you don't. <laughs> I do. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us, therefore, lay aside every cumbrance and the sin that does so easily be said as notice a difference is made there between encumbrances and sin not all encumbrances are sin now i've told this story in the in the Dulaw's principle most of you know it but i'll tell it again because for me this is the best illustration of this principle as most of you know as a young man i played the clarinet in all kinds of groups january 1953 i became the minister of a country church in Ohio, small church, working at a chemical company, going to school 16 hours a week, ministering to this small church, trying to financially make it, <laughs> owned a Model A Ford. And we had either two or three, I don't remember, two or three teenagers in that church. And nearby there was a youth rally being held. And I wanted to take the young people to the youth rally but I didn't have enough money to buy gasoline. But I did have a clarinet. 
And so I went to the pawn shop and hocked the clarinet to get money for to buy gas to take these kids to the youth rally. And afterwards, when it was time to go redeem it, <laughs> and that was not easy to come up with that money, the Holy Spirit said, leave it alone. That's out of your life. It will be an interference for what I'm calling you to do. I had just at that time read the story of a young woman who was an outstanding violinist. And the interviewer asked her, how did you develop such skill? How did you become such an outstanding musician? She said, by following the principle of planned neglect. When my girlfriends were involved in the Girl Scouts, I was practicing the violin. When they were involved in this and that and the other, I neglected all of that. I practiced the violin. And I thought, that's exactly what God is saying to me. Jim, you need to learn to practice the principle of planned neglect. Because there are some things that are not sin, but there are encumbrances that interfere as we give our time to them, our energy to them, our money to them. They interfere with why God has us in the world. Do you have encumbrances in your life? Are the things that are taking your time and way that God wants you to spend your time on something else, your energy, your attention? It's an important thing to learn, the principle of planned neglect to get rid of encumbrances. And then the sin, oh my, the sin that does so easily entangle us. I want to say to the young people here today who are in junior high or high school, what a tough row you have to hold, different than the rest of us my age had. We had temptations, but nothing like you're facing. You were immersed and surrounded by a culture that will do everything it can to pull you away from holiness and righteous living. The culture I grew up in may have done so, but not intentionally. <laughs> We're now in a culture that does. I'll tell you, young people, oh, my, we need to pray for you. And the role that you have to hold, the race you have to run, the hills you're going to have to climb. The sin that does so easily entangle, as one version says, another one says, so easily besets us. And you don't realize at times that your sin just doesn't affect you. John Donne wrote the poem, No Man is an Island. And no man is an island. If you are a drug addict, let me tell you something. You're not the only one affected. Your family's affected. Your boss is affected. Your friends are affected. If you're an alcoholic, if you're addicted to music, <laughs> gambling, perhaps anything else. The sin that does so easily beset us. And some things sometimes become sin that we don't think they are. Sometimes it's our role. Some years ago in Tulsa, there was a minister. He began having an affair with a woman on his staff. They were having sexual liaisons. It was found out. The elders, of course, suspended him and told him he had to go to counseling. 
the counselor called me one day and he said, I don't know what to do. I've never before counseled a minister who has fallen into sin. How do we restore him? And so I met with this counselor and I said, okay, tell me exactly what's going on. What do you mean restore him? His goal was to restore the man to the pulpit. I said, that's wrong. Don't restore him to the pulpit. Restore him to Jesus. That man needs to go out and get a job, work a while, and earn his living. And down the road, if God calls him back to the pulpit, that's God's business. You see, it's tough sometimes, especially for those in ministry, to have their identity in their role rather than in Christ Jesus. It becomes an idol, perhaps even sin. Our identity must be in him. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that does so easily beset us and run the race with endurance. The Greek word translated endurance can also mean patience, and some of your versions reads it that way. Patience, some say endurance. It means both, and both are appropriate here. We have some folks in this church that have been running for a long, long time. For them, it's a time of patience. But it's also a time of endurance, too. To some of those who have run for a long, long time, not only are weary, but right now the road that they're following, the path they're running, is one that's going up a pretty steep hill. And I know some of you today are running down a path that's just full of rocks, and it's hard. It's hard. We need to run with patience. We need to run with endurance because of what we know, <laughs> what waits at the end. I think it was Friday, perhaps it was Wednesday, I think it was Friday at the gymnasium. I just finished the leg press and I saw a man coming toward me and I felt prompted the Holy Spirit to speak to him and so okay how do I begin this conversation I saw he was kind of limping a little bit and I said how long are we supposed to keep this up <laughs> and he said well I, I you know as long as God blesses us with more days on this earth I said, I don't agree. <laughs> That's not a blessing. The blessing for me will be the time when Jesus says, come home. And we had a talk then about eternity and this life and the beauty of what awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. Phil's diner a while back, one morning a man came in like everybody does. How y'all doing? I said, fine, and you? And he said, well, good. I woke up this morning on this side of the earth. Bad point of view. The Savior is waiting with open arms, and what glories wait us when he says, come home. We know what's at the end. How beautiful to live for that. Then one more day. Here, but as Jim Grinnell prayed in elders' meeting 
last Tuesday, Paul said, you know, it's better to go be in Christ, but as long as we're here, may we have fruitful ministry. Fruitful ministry means different things for some of us. There's some of you in this building today who years ago, you were really shakers and movers. You were doing a lot. You could outwork almost anybody. Today you can't. It doesn't mean ministry's over. <laughs> oh, the ministry of intercession, the ministry of prayer. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Even if it's sitting on your couch at home, do it in a way that glorifies him. Even the television programs you watch can glorify him. Or the other way around, depending on what you're watching and how addicted you are to television. All to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then some versions say, fix your eyes upon. Others say, looking unto Jesus the author and finish of our faith, some say, some say the founder. The, the Greek word there is uh, archangelos, and it has the idea of, of being the first. Sometimes it is used for a prince or a king because they're the first, but most usually it is the one who begins something. There's no other foundation that that can be laid than that which is laid as Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul wrote. Looking unto Jesus... The one who started it all, <laughs> but also some versions say finisher, perfecter. It's the one who at the end makes it all right. For a number of years, I was a runner. And it was my routine every day to run seven-minute miles, three miles in 21 minutes. But sometimes I would decide I'm just going to run a long ways. <laughs> and so I would run and I would run, and I would run, and I would get to the place where I would think, man, I can't run another five steps, and I would focus on a tree. I can make it to that tree, and I would. Then another tree, I can make it to that tree, and there was something about focusing on something, I could just make it that far. Focus on Jesus. He's waiting. He's waiting. But there's more than that. Look at his example. Jesus Christ hated sin. And yet, Scripture says, he became sin in our stead. He had to become the very thing he hated because of us despising the cross he endured the cross despising the shame because he loves you he loves me and he did it for us but also for the joy that is set before him Barbara and I had a custom for many years. In those mornings that I did not leave early to meet with someone, we would sit in the dark, cup of coffee in hand, and pray. And one thing we always did was pray for the churches with which we had relationships. We'd start in New England 
and then go south to New York and Virginia and so on and then west and then back north and east and end up with Connecticut. We'd follow the clock. If I'd forget a church, she'd prod me and remind me and we'd stop and pray for that one and go on. Sunday it was different. Sunday morning I'd get up, make the coffee, wake her. <laughs> we'd sit in the dark. But it used to on Sunday morning from 5 in the morning till noon, KBEZ played worship songs. And so we'd have that in the background on Sunday. And the last years of her life, there's one song she always wanted to hear. When it was played, she listened. I dreamt of a city called glory, so bright, so fair. I entered its gates and cried, holy. And the angels all met me there. They took, they carried me from mansion to mansion and oh, the sights I saw. But I said, I want to see Jesus. He's the one who died for all. When I entered those gates, all my friends knew me well. They showed me the streets of heaven. And oh, what I did see. I saw Mark and Luke and John, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Timothy. But I said, I want to see Jesus. He's the one who died for me. Today she does. My brother, my sister, I know for some of you the race is not easy. It's hard to keep going. Satan will do everything he can to make you just quit. In the book of Daniel, one of the ploys of Satan that's pointed out is he will weary, wear out the saints. That's what it says. He will wear out the saints. Some of you are weary, suffering physically, struggling with relationships, perhaps even feeling worthless. Hear me, you're not. Oh, what a wonderful thing to realize who and what waits for us when we cross the finish line. Let's sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace How sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Let's sing this verse. Through many and toils I unfair, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought be safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 
10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. May the Lord bless you. May God be glorified.